This podcast is hosted by Dr. Happymon Jacob. Dr. Jacob is an associate professor of security studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. His weekly column on India's national security and foreign policy issues is published by The Hindu. He is also the author of two new books on India-Pakistan border, Line on Fire by Oxford University Press and Line of Control by Penguin India. Hello and welcome to the National Security Conversation. Israel is one of India's most significant partners and yet it took India and Indians a lot of time to get comfortable with the state of Israel. Israel is the second largest defense supplier to India after Russia and India is the largest buyer of Israeli military equipment. Over the years, the bilateral relationship between India and Israel has actually ventured into new areas like water management. There is, however, a lot of criticism today about the India-Israel relationship that it is not just transactional. For instance, there are concerns about an ideological convergence between Zionism, the founding ideology of Israel, and Hindutva, the ruling ideology in India today. To discuss these issues, I have with me Professor P.R. Kumaraswamy. Kumaraswamy is a professor at the School of International Studies at the Jawaharlal Nehru University and the honorary director of the Middle East Institute based out of New Delhi. Professor Kumaraswamy is India's foremost scholar on Israel and has written widely on issues relating to Israel and the Middle East. Welcome to the National Security Conversation, Professor Kumaraswamy. Thank you very much for having me. <clears throat> Professor Kumaraswamy, a once hesitant relationship for India has now become one of its most important. Would such a statement about India-Israel relationship be accurate? If so, what has made New Delhi give up its hesitation about Israel? You know, if I had to answer your question, I need to take you almost uh, 80 years back and uh, maybe almost a century. You know, the origins of the India's Israel policy began around the time of Khilafat struggle shortly after the Balfour Declaration, which promised the Jewish national home. And from that period onwards, from the early 1920s, the Indian nationalists, for both for domestic compulsions as well as their ideological support for being anti-British, identified themselves with the Arabs of Palestine. And there is also a rivalry between the Congress Party and the Muslim League, which became more prominent in the 1930s. So all of them meant India was pro-Palestinian right from the 1920s, which was visible in 1947 when India was elected to the 11-member UNSCOP, United Nations Special Committee on Palestine. While the majority supported partitioning of Palestine into an Arab and Jewish state, India advocated a federal Palestine. And unfortunately, this was supported only by Yugoslavia and Iran, the remaining seven countries supported the partition plan. And both the plan went to the United Nations. And if you look at it, that was the only time the Arabs and Jews of Palestine agreed in rejecting the Indian plan. For the Jews, Indian plan gave him civil rights and municipal rights. For the Arabs, India gave more rights to the incoming Jews. So with the result, both the parties rejected the Indian plan in 1947. 
otherwise the Arabs and Jews did not agree on anything under the sun at that point of time. And therefore Indian plan was never discussed in the United Nations. It was consigned to the dustbins of history. So when the partition plan was voted in November 1947, India voted against the partition plan. When Israel became a reality in May, India was not very happy with that. When Israel applied for the UN membership in 49, India voted against Israeli entry. And that was the only time India voted against the admission of a country in the United Nations. That was the situation. Well, before you continue with yeah. that, uh, you know, you made the statement about the domestic compulsions of the Indian nationalists forced them to support Palestine. Could you elaborate on that and then move on? Okay. If you look at the 1920s, Gandhi said Palestine belongs to the Arabs. You looked at the Palestinian question through what I would call the Islamic prism. Right. Because the Palestinian question was coming up after Balfour Declaration. India was in the middle of the Khilafat struggle. Within that struggle, Gandhi framed the Palestinian question within the Islamic paradigm. He called it part of Jazeera al Arab, the land of Arabia. If you look at the geography, Palestine is not part of the Arabian Peninsula. But that is how the Indian leadership looked at it. So, in that context, Gandhi supported the Khilafat struggle. The purpose was by supporting the Muslims in the Khilafat struggle, he could get the support of the Muslims for the International Congress. If you look at the 1920s, the title was Indian National Congress. The participation of Muslims in the Indian, Indian National Congress was very meager. So, therefore, Gandhi looked at the Khilafat struggle as a platform to reach out to the Muslims and in the process get the Muslims come on board on the nationalist struggle against the British. That was the context in which Understood. people can have a different opinion, but that is the context in which it took sure. place. Okay. After 47, India looked at things differently. Israel became a reality. It was recognized by all the major powers of the world, including the permanent members of the Security Council. It has entered in the United Nations. And the Arab countries were beginning to support Pakistan on a host of issues. Mm -hmm. These things compel India to revise its position and normalize and to recognize Israel on 17th of September 1950. Interestingly, that is the day the future Prime Minister Modi was born. And if you look at the initial Indian reactions, India was eager to have a diplomatic relations with Israel. A assurance to this effect was conveyed to Walter Yatan, the Director General or what you would call a Foreign Minister of Foreign Secretary of Israel in March 1952 when he came to India to meet Nehru. But to be fair to Nehru, uh, it was Nehru who said in 1950 that we would have recognized Israel long ago because Israel is a fact. We refrained because of our desire not to offend the sentiments of our friends in the Arab countries. So he did realize that Israel is a fact. He recognized Israel is a fact and the importance of recognizing Israel. Absolutely, because if you look at the, uh, the Constituent Assembly debates, there were a lot of questions about India not recognizing Israel. And Nehru was actually in a dilemma. He has recognized China and you know, having recognized China, you could not mm -hmm. say I'm adopting a different position on Israel. And therefore, he recognized Israel as a fact exists, that we know. But the recognition is a formal decision that would take other factor into consideration. So the delayed recognition was logical at that point of time. But in 52, he actually promised Israeli leaders that there will be a full normalization of relations, including a resident mission in Tel Aviv. 
if you look at the archival materials, Nehru actually asked the ministry to prepare a budget. And he told Walter Yatan, India is right in the middle of election, the first Lok Sabha elections. Once the elections are over, he will bring the matter to the cabinet for a favorable reply. From what we know subsequently is that this was opposed by Azad. Both Michael Breacher as well as S. Gopal attribute the absence of relations to Maulana Abul Kalam Azad. I tried my best, but the cabinet papers of the time are still not available. So therefore, you actually cannot say with official documents that this is what happened. But circumstantial evidence of both S. Gopal and Breacher tells me that it was uh, Azad who said time is not right. Basically, the, it will not go down well with the Indian Muslim population, which was already traumatized by partition. And the second thing is, he said that uh, any move towards Israel will be used by Pakistan in the Arab world, and that will work against India and Kashmir, when the Kashmir issue is in the UN Security Council. So the domestic politicization of foreign policy is not a new thing. No, this, no, this, this goes back yeah, absolutely. But you know, you, you know, this is what both of them have said. And interestingly, Michael Breach's work was published when Nehru was still alive. To the best of my knowledge, Nehru never refuted it. And subsequently, um, uh, as Gopal also, based on his access to papers, he said the same conclusion. And therefore, the, the, what happened was that the you know, establishment of relations was delayed. But then came the 1956 Suez crisis. Israel attacking Egypt was not a problem. So many third world countries attack one another. But for Nehru, the problem was not Israel attacking Israel, uh, Egypt, but Israel collaborating with the British and the French imperialism. Mm. And therefore, in November 1956, he comes to parliament and say, time is not right in the light of what has happened. And therefore, from 56 onwards, time is not right became the standard Indian position we saw as Israel. Till 92? Till 92. What brings about the change of mind in 92? You can say a, a number of factors. The most important being the end of the Cold War. While Cold War was not responsible for the absence of relationship, it formalized the absence of relationship. But when the Cold War ended, you have a US-dominated world, and the India will have to communicate two messages that India recognizes the end of the Cold War and the emergence of a new world order and it is ready to react adequately. So the easiest thing for Narsimara was normalized relationship with Israel. Because anything else you would have done, it would have taken enormous time and effort, you would not be able to convince the world. So by recognizing Israel in one stroke, he said, not only we know there is a new world order, we are also ready to respond to that. So, the typical Indian way of continuity and change, he simply said, we only continue Nehru's policy. Nehru promised normalization 40 years ago, we only implemented it. So, in that process, he was able to mitigate the domestic opposition. I am not radically changing anything. Nehru promised normalization, so we simply implementing. That is how he tried to convince the Indian public. That is what, if you look at it, from 1920 to 1992, what I would call the Indian policy is a zero-sum game. In the sense, you recognize any sympathy towards the Jews, any normal relations with Israel will be anti-Arab, anti-Palestinians. 
And that is how India viewed it. That's a, that's a clear thread that's running through the Yeah, right, right through the period. Yeah. So therefore, you had no problem in having a relation with Pakistan and China, with whom you have a territorial dispute and wars. But Israel, with whom you have no bilateral problem, you thought even a normal presence of an embassy in Delhi will be anti-Arab. That is that's, how... That's a very Indi interesting point. That is how the Indian leadership perceived it. There is no other explanation. That's, I mean, you have these two rivals here, Pakistan and China, with whom you have proper, normal diplomatic relationship, but with Israel, with whom you have a, had absolutely no problem, you don't have proper diplomatic relationship. So, it's, so the, the reason is India's concern or sensitivity about its relationship with the Arab world. Arab world as well as the perceived domestic Muslim opinion. I am not saying Muslims are opposed to Israel, no. This is how the Indian leadership viewed it. The second part is what I would call from 92 to 2004. This I would say parallel track. In other words, you recognize it's a new world order. You can, be, have, you can have a relation with Israel and the Palestinians without finding any contradiction. And therefore, you have a parallel, you have a good relation with the Palestinians. You are also cultivating relations with Israel. This is a parallel track. It is no longer a zero-sum game. Which means, in the new world order, it is possible and necessary to talk to both sides of the dispute. Sort of a balancing act. Absolutely. Okay. And therefore, you met Arafat, you, was, you met Israeli leaders. This was continuing from 92 to 2004. This is true for the uh, Narsim Rav government and the subsequent uh, governments, as well as the NDA1. This was the position. The third phase began in 2004. Because by then, the Indo-Israel relations are more stable. But let, let me still be there for a minute. Now, uh, as you correctly pointed out, the sensitivities about the Arab world played a role in India's relationship with the Israel, in determining the contours of India's relationship with Israel. Now, objectively looking at it, isn't that a, um, a justifiable argument that we do have a certain amount of Indians working in the Middle East? We have um, a lot of money coming by way of uh, remittances. So, therefore, we need to have this, uh, cultivate a healthy relationship with the Arab world. And therefore, we need to take it easy vis-a-vis Israel. That was the logic. Um, is, that, is that absolutely unjustifiable? No, no, it was justifiable, but you know, that's only partly correct. Okay. But if you look at it, before 92, India did not have any political leverage. Whatever moral argument you had in 1947 of leadership, non-alignment, non-violence and everything, they were buried in 62. After 62, India's international leverage was on decline. So there is no way you could promote your interests in the Arab world in any other way. You don't have a political leverage. So your only instrument to promote your interest in the Arab world is a Palestinian cause. So to that extent it's justified. Oh yes, that, there is no other way out for you. So therefore you said, I am consistently supporting the Palestine from the 1920s. That became your standard position in all the statements in public. So by flagging in the Palestinian cause, you are trying to counter Pakistan and to enhance your influence in the Middle East. So what could have uh, been done differently from, from, from say, till 92? In, in okay. Your in 92, two things happened. One, the Kuwait crisis. Right. In the Kuwait crisis, 
the Palestinians conveyed an impression they supported Saddam Hussein, which meant the Arabs were angry with PLO and Arafat. For Kuwait, it is personal hurt because as a student, Arafat founded the Fatah in Kuwait. So when the Kuwaiti's point of view, the Saddam Hussein invasion, they expected the others to support, Arafat was supporting Saddam Hussein. That is the perception they got. With the result, you betrayed me. And the hour of need, Palestinians' leadership betrayed the Kuwaitis. This was the opinion of the entire Gulf countries. And therefore, you can no longer use a Palestinian card to promote your interest in the Gulf. So that also gave India the flexibility to change its Necessity. It is not a flexibility. Till then you recognize you can no longer do it. Palestinian cars will not further your interest in the Gulf. Necessity and flexibility. Exactly. And therefore you recognize the, as a result of the Kuwait crisis, the Palestinians were ready to talk to Israelis in Madrid. So, if the Palestinians are ready to talk to the Israelis, if Arafat has no problem with a political settlement with the Israelis, what is my problem? Exactly. Why should I be more Catholic than the Pope? Yes. And therefore, these two things, the diminishing influence of Palestinian factor in the inter-Arab politics and the Palestinian willingness for a political settlement meant India will have to be different. In addition to the end of the Cold War, there is a new reality in the Gulf. Okay. And therefore, you can normalize relations with Israel without antagonizing the, the Arab leadership, which you couldn't do before 92. And therefore, you recognize it's a new opportunity. So I have to communicate a message to Washington saying that world where the Cold War is ended, US dominated world, I'm ready to react to that. But at the same time, in the regional level, the Palestinian factor is marginalized in inter-Arab politics. I recognize it. I'm ready to respond to that. Both of them meant normalization of relations. What happens next? Okay. At the same time, you cannot make a U-turn. It takes enormous time because having committed yourself to the Palestinian struggle and which you believe that Palestinians have a legitimate political rights, you can't simply abandon them. There is no way you can do that. That's not the Indian style of doing it. So therefore, you are trying to balance the two. That is, your traditional friendship with the Palestinians with a newly formed friendship with Israel. That is what both the Congress and the non-Congress governments were doing the, from 92 to 2004. So by 2004, when Manmohan Singh becomes Prime Minister, things are more or less stable. Indo-Israel relations are getting what I would call in a reasonably matured phase. There were disagreements. They were willing to handle it well. So from 2004 to 2014, what I would call non-parallel track in the sense you dealing the bilateral relations from the multilateral problems. India was promoting the bilateral relations with Israel while expressing its difference on the peace process. So they were using both simultaneously. You have no problem in launching an Israeli spy satellite at the same time, you are criticizing Israel's settlement policy in the United Nations. So this is completely a, a different thing. If I had to give an Indian example, this is like the left parties fighting Congress party in West Bengal and cooperating with them in New Delhi. But, but let's go Each back. one 
independent of the other. Well, let's look at this. Yeah. What, what's so contradictory about uh, launching the Israeli spy satellite on the one hand and um, uh, speaking out against Israel's occupation, that you, as, you, as you just said? What's so contradictory about it? Yeah, one is one is a transactional relationship. The other is a, uh, a moral argument that one is making. Now, I don't think it's a relation. It's a transactional one. It's not like you go and buy a vegetable in a car market. It's something more than that. Satellite is not just anybody who is willing to pay the money, I'm going to launch it. Definitely not Israel. Because whatever you do with Israel, so many people will ask questions. And therefore, you should be prepared to answer them. You can't simply say, I'm getting $30 million, therefore I'm launching it. So is it your it's not going to be an argument. So is it your argument then, if I may push back a bit, if, is it your argument that because we buy a certain amount of weaponry from Israel or um, um, have a certain um, economic relationship with Israel, we cannot criticize Israel's uh, human rights violations. Is that the argument? You know, human rights will come to that in a while. We'll, we'll come okay. to that separately. Okay. I'm not saying. So, but because no, you made a comparison. Yeah, of course, no, in the sense, you know, it's not that, you know, it's just because you cannot criticize. That's not an issue. What I'm saying is, you are, this is, you never did it earlier time. Earlier time, you were, before 92, you simply looked at the negative aspect of Israel. You never looked at anything positive. But after 92, you are just trying to balance yourself. So after 12 years, you are reasonably confident saying that I can have a very close military security relationship with Israel, but still criticize Israel on a whole range of issues. You're fine the, with yeah, that. The, the confidence came later on. It was not that before. It was no longer a zero-sum. It's antithesis of zero-sum game. I can cooperate with one, criticizing another. 2004 to oh yes, that that is what what I would, that's what I'm saying. It's a mature way of dealing it. And you would call it a mature way. Of Absolutely, dealing it. because in other words, previously disagreements prevented us to cooperate with one another. Okay. Now I'm not saying because of cooperation you cannot criticize. No, I get it. This is what very sophisticated relationship emerged after 2004, and you know if you look at it, India did not change any fundamental positions on a Palestinian state question of Jerusalem settlements border, Palestinian state, PLO's importance, none of them changed after 92. None of them. But the way in which you put across, the nuanced way has changed. Previously, I have a disagreement with Israel, I have nothing to talk to you. But today, I have a disagreement with Israel, but there are certain things good. Each one independent of the other. I think that's what I said. Communist Party is fighting Congress Party in West Bengal and cooperating with the same Congress Party in Delhi. Is there a contradiction? At one level, yes. But other level, this is how you are, you are expressing yourself a sign of maturity. And it's not that, no, just because I'm getting benefits from Israel, I'm going to sign a blank check. Sure. No. I think that is what. This is done by Manmohan Singh. It was not easy. Because if you look at it, mm -hmm. that was the time the left was talking about course correction. In their argument, the previous Watchbay government went too close to Israel. And therefore, they need to make a necessary course correction to establish India's independent, neutral position, whatever it is. Manmohan Singh never did any other things. Even A.K. Antony, who criticized relations with Israel when he was a chief minister in Kerala, was a defense minister when some of the military deals were negotiated. So you recognize it, you have to be, the world looks differently from a state capital and a national let's, let's move on to the next phase. You have one more phase. Okay. The, third, the fourth phase is rather interesting. And if you look at it, everybody thought Israel will be the first country Prime Minister Modi will visit. 
given the bon homey the pro israeli statements he was what making what was the first prime minister to visit yeah, first no you already visited as a gujarat chief minister for the prime minister probably as a first country one of the first countries you will visit but if you look at it israel was the last country you visited people start asking question why has not gone there yet which basically meant he was normalizing israel within the wider middle east in other words Israel is no longer something special case unique one every country is important israel is also important so instead of normalizing relations with israel as narsimarav did yes normalize israel within the wider middle east policy and that is why if you look at it except for iran no one even bothered about looking at modi's visit to israel in 2017 because that was the last hit. so what I, what is happening in the last 6 years is He has made Israel a normal country, so to speak, in India's Middle East policy. Israel no longer enjoys or no longer seen as a special country in Modi's calculation. Emirates is important, Qatar is important, Saudi Arabia is important, Israel is important. You know, in March this year, you wrote an article, and you say that the rapprochement between Israel and India in the recent years has been brought about. at the expense of the palestinians standing in india's regional policy you give it several examples about uh, unhcr votes on gaza conflict in 2014 india's abstentions and um, um, it was even more clearly visible when pm modi avoided making any references in 2017 to east jerusalem being the capital of the future palestinian state um, so this is not delinking this is taking a clear side because you as you correctly say this is at the expense of the palestinians standing in india's regional policy exactly palestinian standing exactly if you look at it the entire middle east you ask any country in the region give me your top 3 priorities no one will say palestinian issue no one because if you look at all the countries territorial integrity regime survival okay the domestic economic crisis these are the prime concern for the entire middle east syria was in the forefront of palestinian struggle what is the priority for assad survival of the state as we know syria as an entity as we know since the end of the second world war is questionable ask cc if none of the that what i'm saying the standing of the palestinian issue is completely significantly diminished modi was reacting to the reality that's what i'm saying no so it is one thing to say that we have a mature relationship like 2004 to 2014 Onwards. as you currently pointed out mm-hmm. wherein you are not complicating matters you are saying all right we need to have our relationship with israel and at the same time we may criticize israel for what it does uh we may also stand by the palestinians in their legitimate claims etc but now we are talking about india taking a clear side it is not about uh, as you said as you say this is this is at the expense of the palestinians no 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 i didn't say that palestinian standing that is it's not expense so of what, Pal- what what is that in what is it basically that's what i'm saying you are no longer an important issue for the entire region how we got there The Palestinian issue is important for the Palestinians. Full stop. Is it important to others? So But the, the Syrian, if you look at the official statements in the last ten years, okay, whenever a foreign leader comes, India issues a joint statement. I did a study of uh, last ten mm-hmm. years, mm-hmm. even during uh, Manmohan Singh's period. The Palestinian issue figures only 
in India, statesmen with Saudi Arabia and Egypt, nowhere else. Because both of them, there is a context. Egypt sees himself as an important Arab leader. Saudi Arabia thinks in the same as an Islamic leader. And therefore, both the countries insist on including Palestinian issue in all the statesmen with India. So when you say Palestinian standing in India's foreign policy has diminished, does it also mean India's focus on the so-called Israeli excesses in West Bank and Gaza um, has also diminished? Um, you know, it's... Uh, what I would say that no, this is the what I would say the compulsions of normalizations. When you don't talk to someone, you can make any number of statements. You can actually abuse me in my absence. Okay, you can use any kind of. The moment is a Kumarasamy is very much sitting in the room, you may criticize me in a very diplomatic manner. Because my presence will in the same way to anybody. So by normalizing relations with Israel, you simply cannot give a open-ended statement as you are making before '92. And that was the compulsion. So you need to, so it is not a question of exercise. If you look at all the Indian statements, whoever, whichever is the government in power, they always said the bilateral issues should be resolved peacefully. We no longer identify who is an aggressor. We no longer blame one particular party. This is a position from 92 onwards, right across the last 25 years. Because that's the compulsions of talking to people. The moment you normalize the relationship, you cannot be abusive. But that doesn't take away from the fact that there is a moral issue of the Israeli excesses. Would you put it that? Would you, would you uh, agree with that? You know, moral issue is pretty dangerous game. But the simple reason, if you start being moral in your, the way in which you look at the outs, outside world, you'll be the first casualty. Interesting. Okay. Is now, that one of the reasons why India is taking a... Uh, less aggressive stance vis-a-vis -vis the Middle East conflict, the Israel-Palestinine conflict. Uh, you know, if, if, if you look at it, you know, which country is a morally Middle East or even beyond with whom I would like to emulate as a model? Can you such as a country? So you're saying that no country is moral in its behavior and therefore... If there is enlighten me. No, I'm... Oh, I'm you should, so this no. country is always moral, ethical and principle in its foreign policy, emulate it. No, so, so the argument then means, the conclusion of the argument then means, since no country is moral, you don't necessarily have to have uh, normative claims in your foreign policy. Uh, you know, personally, you know, morality is for individuals, not for nation states. That's, that's a position. That's a very, that's a very valid... Individuals should have moral. Even that's a questionable. Mm -hmm. These days, you know, we find out all the religious leaders, Pope, and all of them in trouble with the moral values. Even that really individual. But I'm saying morality is for individual. Nation says only of individual. Nation should be driven by national interest. Absolutely. That is what it is. And you know, you may flag it in a very beautiful garment and thing if it suits you. But otherwise, I wouldn't go into that. How significant is India's defense relationship with Israel? You, you talked about it's more than transactional. It's not just yeah, transactional, yeah. is it? So it's more than transactional, is it just transactional? You know, the more than transactional in the sense, you know, uh, Israel is, has emerged itself because of historical reasons, has become a dependable player. And therefore, you know, it's in that sense, it's an advantage. And the second thing, there is an enormous convergence of interest. Israel wants a technological superiority technological independence, which serves Indian interests. I think that is how it works. But there are flip sides to that, because Israel does not export platforms, ships, aircrafts, tanks. They are the bulk items. 
So therefore, Israel can only provide ways of improving them, additional armament, radar and others, but not the basic platforms. So Israel can never be the largest uh, arms supplier to India. There is no way it can do. But over the years, others are competing. Previously, European countries were competing, Russia was competing, now the US has come into the market. In the defense field, oh, yes. why, how is Israel different from the other, other, other countries? You know, Israel, most of the things, uh, Israeli weapons are battle tested on the ground. Mm. So it's like, you know, this many kilometers I drive to, this many you battle operations, that's one. And the second thing is, Israel has improvised a lot of American and Russian weapons over the years. So, because of the American weapons supply to it and the Russian weapons captured in the battlefield. So, it has an access to both. So, in that sense, it can provide enormous offensive and defensive capability to Indian military establishment. Right. And, you know, it's on the ground. So, therefore, it's battle And it stands by you, as you correctly pointed out. Pardon? This is a country that stands by you in, yes, in times in, of in, in terms of crisis. That's what it is. That is how, you know, therefore, I wouldn't simply say it's a transactional relationship. I wouldn't. Professor Kumaraswamy, there is an argument that is often made about the increasing ideological relationship between Zionism and Hindutva. In his book, Hindutva, first published in 23, 1923, Savarkar wrote, no people in the world can more justly claim to be recognized, to get recognized as a racial unit than Hindus and perhaps the Jews. In August this year, a little known organization called the Indo-Israeli Friendship Association hosted a talk on Zionism and Hindutva at the University of Mumbai. The keynote speakers were Subramanian Swami, Rajya Sabha member of the BJP and uh, um, Gadi Tuab, a professor at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Um, posters promoting the event had the Zionist proponent Herzl alongside the Hindutva ideologist Savarkar. So is the India-Israel relationship more than a normal bilateral partnership? Or are we making too much out of it? You know, one can read any things one wants to do. You know, world looks depending upon the prism you're looking at it. And similar comparisons were made during Vajpayee's government. People said it is not an Indo-Israeli relationship. It is a BJP-Likud relationship. Therefore, the left wanted a course correction. But if you look at it, Modi's approach to Israel has been professional. He went to Iran. Does it make him an Ayatollah? He went to Saudi Arabia. He met the Saudi crown prince and the Saudi leadership six times since he took over office. He met, does it make him a Wahhabi? Emirate is going to be a major investor in India. Does it make him another thing? Why don't people ask the same question? If you are talking about it, let's ask. Modi is becoming an Ayatollah, Wahhabi, or is the religious radicalist? And you know, if you look at it, in, in what way, in, can you give me concrete policy? Okay, this policy was simply because of ideological convergence. Whatever made you Prime Minister Modi inside of the green, inside of the immigration counter. The moment he crosses the immigration counter, he, say, he behaves in an entirely different way. I said it in, in so many forms. But just to be fair to this argument, yeah, yeah. I'm not agreeing with it. Yeah, yeah. But policy is, policy is something. But I'm just reading out mm. stuff to you which people have been talking about. So, people can so say. Putting, putting it differently, therefore, that there is a certain amount of ideological affiliation or affinity that is taking roots between these two sides, even though at the policy level there may not be any, 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 any indication. You of need it. to give me evidence. 
okay, this route led to this, which India would not have it done. It doesn't need to have. You know, you know, I'm not making the argument that India's, India's Israel policy is driven by an ideological agenda. I'm making a different argument, which is there is an ideological convergence, apparent or say alleged ideological convergence between Zionism and Hindutva. At least people are talking about it. Do you think that exists or not? I don't see that. I don't see that going by the evidence. So all these people who talk about, say, Subramanian Swami or people within the BJP who talk about um, um, Zionism and Hindutva fighting terrorism together, Islamic terrorism together, you would say that's a, that's a bunch of nonsense. Who do you? No, I, don't, I wouldn't use the word. I wouldn't use the word. Chum. I would say that everyone is correct to the extent of the knowledge and the person they are using it. Now, what, what would be your, your own personal uh, appreciation of... Uh, say what people like uh, Subramaniam Swami are talking you know, about. You know, Subramaniam Swami's article in 1982 started my interest in Israel, way back in 1982. So the, the, that's what I'm saying. It's not yesterday's one. This is where my interest in Israel began. I said it in public also. It's nothing okay. new in that. But what I'm looking at is that, you know, I need to see evidence. When people drawing a comparison, one can draw a comparison between Jinnah and anybody or Gandhi with anybody. It's always possible. Drawing a parallel because people, important leaders say enormous statements and therefore they say a whole range of issues, they make comments on a variety of issues. So we cannot take things out of context and so he said once, therefore it is. No. But I need to say evidence. Say that India's relations with Israel is driven by nothing but ideological convergence. Give me an evidence. No, I'm not making that argument. It's not there. So people can say anything they want. Or uh, and it's a it's a context. You are going for a conference. You invite me to a conference. I have to say nice things about the person on in whose honor the conference is taking place. These are all diplomatic niceties. Don't take anything so beyond that. Putting it differently, you would say, as as, as a professor of uh, uh, international relations and a specialist of uh, Israel, you would say that uh, uh, people can say what they want uh, about a convergence between Hindutva and Zionism. Be that as it may, they are free to do that. But India's Israel policy or India's Middle East policy is not driven by any such convergence. No. All right. My, my second last question. I have two more questions. Uh, my second last question is about India's stand on allegations of human rights violations by Israel. Uh, you know, India, as I said, in the last 20 years, we have been more circumspect in criticizing Israel because of the compulsions of normalization. But you know, human rights is a much bigger issue. I want to be a better person, not because of somebody else, but how I see myself in front of the mirror. Okay, so the, every country had to look at the human rights in their own level. But what we have got to a point is, you know, I don't need certificate from people whose own human rights record is pretty bad. It's like, you know, apologies of Stalin talking what about... No, no, apologies of Stalin talking about democracy and freedom of expression or the UNHCR which com comprises of countries like Pakistan, Saudi Arabia and China telling me that India's human rights record is good. I don't need any of them. But human rights record is, I think, individual had to do it. No, no, we are talking about human rights violations that's, by that, Israel. That is, uh, that's what I'm saying. That is how India looks at it because the moment you start passing a judgment, you'll be in the receiving and tomorrow or day after. But in the Indian case, in the Israeli case, this is, we are, we are not giving our uh, carte blanche to the Israeli position. What we have done it, we have been relatively circumspect. That's what you are doing. 
previously when there was no relations, we were in the forefront of criticizing Israel because there is nothing to lose. But now that the, the, the normalization, you know, this is like a, my presence in a building and my absence in a place. That, you know, the people, how they deal with them. So that's the compulsions of uh, having a relationship. You cannot be reckless as you were before. So what would, you, what would your response be to those people who make an equation between, uh, who equate uh, West Bank with Kashmir? Uh, you know, if, if you know, I, I would simply confine to the demographic debate. Okay, there are people who have been after 370 and everything, a lot of people are saying that, you know, uh, India should follow these, would, might follow the Israeli example and change the demographic balance. Two things, Israel was not able to do successfully the demographic change. If India were to follow it, it will be the Chinese model in Tibet. I'm not so sure people who are talking about Kashmir and West Bank would they say about Tibet because India is trying to be closer to China. Maybe Prime Minister can talk tomorrow. How do you change the demographic? Don't make it right. Huh? That is a different story. I'm not saying that. But if you want to emulate a model, that won't be Israeli model. That will be a Chinese model in Tibet. Are you ready to raise it? Professor Kumaraswamy, my final question. Um, there aren't too many Israel experts in India. You're probably one of the very few people who are working on Israel. And, and you've done through, uh, you, you've done work on Israel consistently all, through all these decades, um, uh, notwithstanding how the Indian state looked at Israel. Tell us something more about the kind of work that you do and, and what inspires you to study uh, Israel. You know, uh, you know it uh, all began in 1982 after the Lebanon war. And Subramanian Swami visited Israel and wrote an article in Sunday. And the article was very controversial. And that's the time I found out we don't have a relation with Israel. I really said, why we don't have relations when you have relations with Pakistan and China and everybody? Why not with Israel? It began as a curiosity in 1982. I'm stuck for the next 37 years. And still, it tells me more exciting things. And you know, it's a blessing to be one of the few people lucky to study Israel more than three decades. It's a blessing. And you've lived heaven. in Israel? I spent about 10 years in Israel. You speak Hebrew? I understand Hebrew. It's a blessing from heaven. Wonderful. Nice talking to you. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate and follow us. For regular updates, you can also follow our Twitter handle NSC with HJ or our Facebook page National Security Conversations with Happy Mon Jacob.